University's talk show, Taking Old School Viral. I'm your host, Manda O'Fox Gillespie. I lead the Mother Tree Project, and I'm here to learn about your forests. And we hope, we hope the Mother Tree Project and Mother Tree Network can collaborate with with you and the Kwahus, because that's what we really need to do, right? If we're going to deal with climate change, and we want productive forests that are going to, you know, become old growth forests that are biodiverse and can absorb and buffer the vagaries of climate change, we've got to grow it back. So how do you do that? So, so that's the other question. Um, and I think, the, I think that these ecosystems have that capacity. They do. That's the voice of Dr. Suzanne Samard, professor of forest ecology at the University of British Columbia and the author of Finding the Mother Tree. For 48 hours, she spent time with a team of students and local foresters to see if Cortez would be a good fit for mother tree research. Cortez charmed her on many levels. So she's interested in a longer stint sometime in the fall. Before she departed, she chatted with filmmaker Bill Weaver and Dr. Robin June Hood, the coordinator of the Mother Tree Network. Here is the entirety of that interview. Suzanne, what are your takeaways from walking through the forest for the past couple of days? Um, well, for one, it's a really healthy forest. Um, you know, a lot of the forests in British Columbia are being affected by climate change. Where I'm from, in the interior of the, for- of the province, you see big fires and you know, insect outbreaks and massive logging, clear-cut logging. I don't see that here on Cortez. I see a, a pretty intact ecosystem. Um, it, it's, not, it's buffered against um, those dramatic disturbances that are affecting so many places. Um, it doesn't mean it's not going to happen here because climate is changing and these ecosystems are being stressed as well. It's just that they're, the buffering capacity of the Pacific Ocean and you know, just its location in, you know, nestled in these islands means that it's, it's not um, subjected, at least yet, to these very extreme events. Um, and so I see a healthy forest. And, and in, it's not just its location, though. It's also the people that live here. Um, and so they live in, you know, a very productive place in the world. Um, there's food all over in this forest. There's berries, there's salmon, there's clams. Um, there, you can sustain a very healthy and vibrant population. And, of course, there have been for thousands of years uh, First Nations people that have lived here, thrived here, um, and settler communities have thrived here. And so what I see when I come here is a thrifty forest with a thrifty community of people. You've been here on Cortez for a few days. What are your impressions of the place? 
one of the things that's really striking to me is that the forest is beautiful. There are big trees here. Um, there's a lot of wildlife. I can hear the birds singing in the trees. Um, the plant communities are beautiful and lush. Um, and the reason that it is is because the people have looked after this forest, um, cared for it in a very, with a very light touch, um, with their hearts. But the other reason, of course, is because of this, where this place is. This place is, um, you know, on the edge of the Pacific Ocean. And because of its climatic richness, the, the rainfall, the, the warm-ish climate, um, that it is one of the most productive places on Earth. Um, we're in the Pacific Rim Forest. Um, we know through scientific studies done all through the Americas and through Japan and on down through the, the Eastern Pacific Rim um, that these are some of the most productive forests in the world. They're, they're jewels. And so Cortez is part of that. And, um, and scientists have rightly been calling for the conservation of these forests in a very deep way because of their outsized role in, um, in ecosystem functions, in the circulation of the oceans, in the migration of species up the coastline, but also in, for climate change, these are huge storehouses for carbon. And with that biodiversity, they, they go together. So really Cortez is, is a beautiful... Um, special keystone place and the people that lived are living here are protecting that as best as they can. Southern Gulf Islands and then the, the Discovery Islands to the north and so even partway through C Cortez Island um, we're in the middle of that transition from the dry drier Douglas fir forest to the wetter cedar hemlock forest to the north and so from a from an ecological point of view that means that when you have those ecotones you have outsized biodiversity. You have more biodiversity than in the core areas because they're using both habitats. Um, and with that biodiversity, so in terms of trees and shrubs and birds and animals, they um, fill all kinds of niches that increase the productivity of the forest and the ecosystems that are supported by forests. So it really is a special place because of that ecotome nature to this place. You've written and, and done a lot of research around uh, mycorrhizal networks, and I wonder about reflecting on the people in the, uh, that you've met here on the island, and that, that image seems to be descriptive of the people too. Do you have any comments on that? Yeah, so, you know, networks are such a biological, um, a highly evolved biological pattern. And um, we see it in humans, we see it in plant communities, in fungal communities, we see it at large scales. And so how, how does that work? Um, and is that you have, um, you sort of have this dispersed collaborative system. So a social system, an ecosystem, where the individuals in that system work together and, and they build um, something special through their relationships. So it's really about the relationships between the people in their social network on Cortez Island that makes this place unique. Um, there are a lot of uh, creative people here, a lot of deep thinkers, um, people who, have, who are engaged at higher political levels and who are also engaged at the forest ecosystem level. And so they actually have 
you know, they're filling, even though there's not that many people here, they're feeling, filling a whole bunch of social niches in that network and they're working together. And that's so much like a forest or a mycelial network in the forest where in the ground we have fungi that um, grow in patterns. They're, they're actually neural networks, biological neural networks, where, um, where they actually connect trees or trees connect with each other through these mycelial networks, these patterns. And so, so you have trees of different niches and different importance, importance in different ways and sizes um, and leaders in, in those ecosystems too where they're pumping energy into the, into the system, developing relationships with their neighbors and then communicating and working together to create an emergent forest. So the social network on Cortez is pretty much the same or patterned after the mycorrhizal network in, in the forest. You've brought some people here with you. Um, who are they and what are they doing? I've brought with me what I call the Mother Tree Crew. And the Mother Tree Crew is, is a bunch of students, really students of the forest. Um, I've picked them up here and there from my local community of Nelson, from the university where I teach, from the different universities across British Columbia colleges. And, and one, of the, you know, one of the key things I, I look for in students is their love for for nature and for forests. Uh, so they all have that. Um, a lot of them, you know, the young, they come on when they're 16 or 17, maybe in their late teens, and they kind of grow up with the Mother Tree Project. And, and so they, they really are kids of the Mother Tree Project. And, and they, um, you can tell that they have a deep love for the forest they're working with. They have a great pride in their, their work with the Mother Tree Project. And, you know, even though they're kind of quiet and don't don't um, um, speak arrogantly about it, their knowledge of the forest is extremely deep, and, and it's because they've been in it for so long. You know, some have been there for five or six or more years. I have a student that's been with the project for eight years, and and so that forest is infused right through them. And so they actually carry then a very special role in society because a lot of, in modern society, a lot of people don't get that experience. And so they're the teachers now. They are, have a role and a responsibility, I think, in inviting their friends, inviting other members of the community into their knowledge and into the forest with them um, so they can teach. Um, but but really, they do have a very, very special role now to play in in our social ecosystem um and in a place like cortez how would you see that developing over the years yeah so um so my students have worked in forests all the way from the northern the subboreal forest in the north down to the dry grassland forests in the south and on the coast um and so they bring this breadth of place to to them and so they bring that understanding of variation to Cortez Island, but, but even more, they, they bring with them this knowledge of how to work peacefully in the forest and how to observe, um, how to look at the, at the fungi and the insects in the forest floor, how to, how to understand whether it's healthy or not, um, how, to, how to look at a soil and know if it's, if it's you know, full of heart and, and it's evolving and developing. Um, they know of what a healthy forest looks like. They've measured it. They've measured all the species in and on them. Um, so they have this, this really special understanding. And so 
what I think that they can bring to Cortez is to work with the people of Cortez, work directly with the kids and with with the Clahus and with the elders and um, who also have their own special understanding of the forest here that's unique and local. And so we can bring sort of like this, the students with their sort of their deep understanding in a wider range of forests and their scientific skills to work with the local people and together they'll they'll learn more from each other and so i see a huge teaching role for these students as lo- as well as the scientific role of of helping um helping the community try to figure out how to how to best manage their forests for for future healthy forests and i guess this is going back to like that quintessential question but why is saving the forest right now so vital yeah, why it's so important for us to be focusing on forests now, um, because, you know, we're in this existential crisis called climate change. And climate change means that our climate is warming. Um, the rainfall patterns are changing dramatically. We have more extreme events. Um, we're, we're living in that change now here in British Columbia. We've all been traumatized to some level or another of, of fires that are licking at our doors or floods that are carrying our homes away or you know, forests that are dying over huge landscapes and causing intense grief in the people. Um, and this is only going to continue on unless we do something about climate change unless we actually take seriously finding solutions to mitigating climate change. Um, and one of the key solutions lies in forests. Forests are a natural solution. Um, and why is that? It's because they're you know, great organisms that photosynthesize. You know, they're the biggest creatures in the world that can photosynthesize. And photosynthesis is that highly evolved bio, bio, biological mechanism for taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere combining it with water, turning it into sugars, and storing that fixed carbon in the ecosystem. These are big storehouses for carbon, and they sequester carbon through photosynthesis. There's nothing else that does it as well. And, and we know um, just by you know, measuring carbon in forests that there are certain forests that are really special at doing that. Cortez is one of those places. Um, but if our forests are dying, and that is what what is happening over vast swaths of the of the earth, um, they're 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 getting stressed, they're dying back, and what we've, we've seen is that forests have stopped being a sink for carbon dioxide, and to becoming a source. Overall, the temperate forests, the boreal forests, the tropical forests, now we know they're all becoming sources for CO2. And so that's a tr- that's really really not good. Um, we have to change that back so that they are drawing down CO2. So how do we do that? Well, the way we do that is we have to shift how we're managing our forests. So we've have been on this you know century long or more quest to exploit forests to basically liquidate old growth forests, which are the very essence of carbon storage. We're actually cutting down the very things that will save our lives. So we've got to stop doing that. And then we need to restore the forests that we've damaged. So in clear-cutting old-growth forests, we've replanted them to plantations that are very simple. Um, They've lost a lot of the carbon and nutrients in the soil as a result of continuous and repetitive clear-cutting. Um, and so they're not operating at their potential. And so this is another solution, key solution to climate change, not only saving our old growth forests, but restoring the forests that we have you know, 
industrially managed so that they can expand their ability again to be at their capacity to draw down CO2. And, and that solution, if we employ these solutions in restoring ecosystems, scientists are saying that we can actually you know, mitigate climate change by about a third. That's huge. The other part is going to come from, from redu- you know, eliminating the use of fossil fuels um, or as much as possible for our energy source. So shifting to alternative energy sources. But those two together can solve a large part of the climate change problem. Um, unfortunately, we're not doing that. We're actually moving in the opposite direction. We're still cutting down old growth forests, whether you're here on the West Coast. In fact, you know, the last stands of old growth, iconic old growth forests are under threat today. There's only 3% of the valley bottom forests left. They're earmarked for logging. Like, we got to give ourselves give our heads a shake why are we doing this because once we cut them down they'll release a big pulse of co2 back to the atmosphere and they'll no longer be able to take it up so it's like like a double whammy Um, not just here on the west coast but like the amazon rainforest is also being cut down at a rapid rate to exploit oil and gas underneath the forest or to convert to soybeans or cattle ranching once these forests are gone in this climate period they're gone we're not going to get back that big you know, those big intact ecosystems again, they're going to be changed by climate change, you know, so we've got to get in there, stop that cutting and restore the forest so that they're vibrant again and, and drawing down CO2. I read an article this morning that, um, that was like big breakthrough in climate change. This could solve climate change, reverse climate change. And I looked at the article and it was these scientists at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and they've developed these silicon cells that they're going to put up in the atmosphere to deflect the sun's rays back into the atmosphere and that this is going to solve global warming. I say, come on. I mean, good for you for figuring out some solution, but this is not the solution. If we, you know, if we cut down all of our forests, which we're rapidly doing, there's nothing, no silicon cell is going to save us from, from climate change. Maybe it's a great technological invention, but our natural solutions are the only way that we're going to get out of this. What happens to a forest ecosystem when there is a clear cut? You know, what happens to carbon dioxide when we cut down a forest? Let me go through this. Um, So here we have an old growth forest here, photosynthesizing at this enormous rate, this huge crown of leaves, taking in CO2, combining it with water, turning it to sugars, driving the metabolism of the tree, but about a third of that ends up going through the roots into to feed the soil food web. And that soil food web is what drives nutrient cycling. And it's also through the death and decay and food chain effects, how that carbon, those sugars are converted into organic matter in the soil. So organic matter is the dead stuff in the forest floor. Um, and that is where most of the nutrients are held in a soil. And it's also where about half of the carbon, at least in these temperate rainforests, is held. Okay, so when you cut down that tree, those trees, that forest, what happens? Well, first of all, you immediately lose the photosynthetic capacity of the tree because there's no leaves there, the tree is is dead. Um, Then that tree uh, is hauled off of the site and um, usually it's just the, the, the stems of the trees are hauled off um, usually the, the leaves are left behind, but if, even the, the whole, you know, leaf area can be hauled off. That's called whole tree or whole stem harvesting, which 
takes all of the nutrients basically off the site. So we've lost the photosynthetic capacity of the forest and we've lost the nutrient, most of the nutrients from the forest if you do this whole tree harvesting. So now we're, you're no longer drawing down CO2. These trees are not able to fix carbon dioxide and store it in their stems and roots on the forest floor. Um, and so we've lost that capacity. But at the same time, as you, when the trees are removed, 95% um, of the carbon is moved off the site and turned into other products. So um, those products are, include things like pulp and paper um, and two-by-fours and maybe value-added products like flooring or log houses or just ordinary houses. Overall, what scientists have found is that in North America that um, those products, 65% of them are short-term products. So they only last within one year. So that means that when, when car carbon modelers look at that, they say, oh, it's immediately vaporized into the atmosphere. They don't even count it as a storage at all. And then the rest of the 35% that's moved into longer-term storage products have varying shelf lives. But on average, it's about 25 years. These trees here live to 400, 500,000, 2,000 years. So 25 years isn't very long. Um, so when you're thinking, oh, it'll be turned into long-term storage products, remember, it's actually a very short term in, in, in the breadth of a life of a tree. Okay, so, so we're losing, a t you know, 95% of the carbon when we log clear-cut a forest. The, same thing, the, the thing that happens then is that the, because you have no transpiration left, the water table rises in the forest. So the water... Um, you know, the rain comes, it puddles on the surface of the floor and it starts to move off the site. And with that, erosion can happen. And that erosion can carry parts of the forest floor. Um, it can carry twigs and needles and bugs and cause, you know, and actually cause mineral soil to erode. So that's a po possible problem. But also in, in raising the water table and the warming of the soil, um, you actually can increase the metabolism of the soil food web. So it starts to operate a little faster because there's more, you know, there's slash on the ground, which, which is carbon rich. Um, they start to decompose that. And in decomp decomposition, what those organisms are after are the nutrients. Slash is generally quite nutrient poor. And remember, we've moved most of the nutrients off the site in this whole tree logging. So they're eagerly trying to get at nutrients. Um, and so they consume a lot of the slash. And in the process, they evolve CO2. That's how decomposition works. And so slowly that slash and then the forest floor starts to decay. And so what, what we, and that decay process increases CO2 emissions to the atmosphere. So what we found actually with logging in the mother tree project is that in the soil, which contains about half of the carbon of the whole ecosystem, we're losing about half of the forest floor carbon, which is a significant part of soil carbon. So we've lost, the trees, 95%, we've lost half of the forest floor. What this adds up to is a loss of about 60 to 70% of carbon from a clear cut, as a result of clear cutting within the first year. That's a profound loss. And then the losses will continue over time as decomposition goes on. So, you know, then we replant them to plantations generally across our province. These plantations are generally you know, one or two species of trees. They're not the diversity that was here in the first place. And, I, and that's just in species, right? And they all tend to be the same age. And so they're not filling a whole bunch of niches in that ecosystem. They're filling one or two niches. 
unlike an old forest, which is filling the whole, the whole niche space. And so because they're only filling a small niche space, that means they can't absorb as much CO2 and they can't um, acquire as many nutrients and water from the soil. And so that ecosystem is very impoverished in biodiversity and its ability to produce biomass and carbon and, and store carbon. So they're, they're kind of like, you know, very simplified forests. They have very low potential to absorb carbon dioxide. And, and so we've really, you know, we've hit ourselves in so many ways. We removed the old trees, we increased decomposition, then we replaced it with a, with a weak forest. And so we've lost so much in that process. So one thing that the Mother Tree Project is trying to do is to restore also, not only just protect these old forests, but restore these simplified plantations. So that we have plants coming back, you know, the salmon berries and the salal and the huckleberries that are filling niche spaces and then many species of trees so that you can capture all the light in, in, in the canopy and you can capture the soil nutrients and water to drive photosynthesis that will then restore its ability, its capacity to take up CO2. To protect forests and restore forests, the first thing that we need to do is reduce the cut. You know, the cut is the allowable annual cut, which is the amount of harvest that we do every year. It's unrealistically high. Uh, we can all see the consequences on, on our landscape. And then we need to restore forests, and restoring forests makes jobs. So really what we're doing is converting the harvesting jobs to the restoration jobs. And the restoration is actually more jobs because it's going to require more care than sending out feller bunchers and hoe checkers to cut down trees with, by machinery. So we need people to care for these forests. And how, who's going to pay for those jobs? Well, one of the ways is through carbon, carbon credits. As we grow carbon credits, the market is building that we can actually earn money by selling those carbon credits to big corporations that are trying to reduce their impact um, on their carbon footprint. So that market is going to explode, in my opinion, and there's great opportunity then to make, you know, for communities to make money by restoring their forests and growing back the ability to sequester carbon and store it. Can you talk about how Cortez could be a place of learning and innovation and be used to set examples for others? Cortez, as an island community, is um, it's unique ecologically, but also in its place in the world, in that there's incredible people who are here who have come here because of it's an island ecosystem and because it's an intact, vibrant ecosystem. Um, and so you have this incredible brain wealth here. Um, and that brain wealth has, I would say, a lot to offer to the world. And with the Mother Tree Project of trying different ways of restoring forests, um, we can showcase to the world um, how it can be done, how to restore the vitality so that they become the huge carbon sinks that they once were. Um, and people will then see the opportunity. They'll say, oh, you know, maybe we don't have to clear cut our forests. Maybe what, what we thought for the last hundred years, we don't have to keep doing that. There's alternatives that are actually better and they, pro they provide healthier wealthier and I when I say wealth I mean like you know mental wealth <laughs> emotional wealthy lives um, where we're rich uh, fulfilling lives surrounded by an uh, intact ecosystems you met some last night some of the young people from the children's forest and I just wondered if you could speak a little bit about that yeah um the 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 girls from the children's forest um 
you could see their pride of having grown up in the forest and learned from the forest and uh, humbled by by nature and their place in nature, um, that they're part of that forest. And so they grew up being cared for by the trees and of course their, their own elders and their families. But the forest was their family too and you can see that in them. And they're carrying that pride forward um, and, and developing livelihoods out of it. Um, and you can see that you know, the, the forest took care of them and now they're taking care of the forest. And so this is how g- generations work, right? You, you mentor and care for as you become able, as you grow up, and, and then, then um, it gets passed on. It gets your knowledge and your nurturing, you pass it on to the next generation and so on. And so I see that, that intergenerational love in the forest among the people, and those kids totally have it. Why are you developing a network right now? You've done all the scientific work and whatever, and so why are you also now creating a, this network, and what's that all about? So the Mother Tree Project has really evolved very rapidly in the last year, and we, what we're developing is called the Mother Tree Network. And so we've, um, and this, what this means is taking this very solid science on the impact of logging and clear-cutting on ecosystems and finding alternatives to it and taking it to the people and saying, look, there's choices here. And, and in order to communicate that, it takes more than uh, writing a scientific paper. In fact, scientific papers don't really inform anybody. Even policymakers ignore them. Um, they're very choosy about what they'll listen to. So the Mother Tree Network is taking the message of what we can do directly to the people and getting people involved so that they're doing this work and they're the voices for their own forests. And so we're kind of like catalyzers for that, to show the possibilities, work with them to create new possibilities, um, work with First Nations, work with local communities, work with kids, um, because we all have that power in us and we all want to do something and we can do things we we have all these solutions at our fingertips so the network is opening up that possibility providing support for it um, intellectual support um, finding financial support for it um, getting the science out into the hands of the people so they can make decisions and push pol- politics politicians to to champion good policies right now we don't have good policies and it's really the people mobilizing to say you know what? The forest policies in British Columbia are just the same business as usual, and it's and it's not working. And we need something that works. And so, the Mother Tree Network will really, I I think, empower, inspire people to go and make those political changes. I'm thinking about the the TED Global mm. Council, yeah. and just wondering what some of your key pieces might be that you want to bring to that council. So I've been invited to be on the TED Global Vision Council for Climate Change. And the idea is to work with businesses so that they can envision a different way of doing business to find solutions to climate change. And really, this is the examples I've been telling you about clear-cutting versus regenerative forestry. That's one of those brilliant visions that we need. And that's why I've been invited, I think, to the to the councils. So what I want to bring to the council and to people is say, we have options and we're not using them. Um, and we need business on, is on board to, to use these different options and, and explore new ones. 
and that there's a whole new economy out there based based on that regenerative forest economy. Um, forests are a vital solution to climate change. If we if we don't if we don't restore them, we're not going to make it through. So this is not trivial, and and so I'm bringing to that the business community and say, you got to envision a different way of making money instead of cutting down these forests. You need to revitalize them and save them and make money that way. And how do you do that? Well, we have market mechanisms that are falling into place pretty rapidly, and that's through the carbon credits or whatever carbon vehicle it takes to to actually measure and value the, the carbon storage. And a lot of people have wondered, is you know, is carbon too narrow? Is it too parochial? And I'd say, you know, yeah, there's going to be those cases where it's not a good representation, but overall, in an economy, a world economy, I think it will work because we can measure carbon. We've been doing it very well for the last numbers of years. We can we can put a value on carbon, and it's happening. It's got to be at the right value. It can't be underpriced. It's got to be more than the price of two-by-fours so that we stop cutting down our forests. Um, but we need to put a proper price on it that will provide a well-being economy for people to go out and look after their forests instead of tearing them down. So that's what I want the business community to, to get that concept. And then once they understand that concept, they'll have all the market mechanisms to put it in place. Um, and we can, we can show through our research how, how to make it work on the ground. But they need to, to, to develop the market mechanisms for this to happen. This is essential. It's got, we've got to make this shift. Suzanne, you had the opportunity to meet and work with an island elder, Bruce Ellingson, on the weekend of his birthday. What are your thoughts about eldership and about Bruce? You know, society is made of people of all ages and um, all roles in life from the elders all the way to the kids. We all have important roles. In forests, the elder trees, the mother trees, are the essential linkers. And here on, on Cortez Island, there are some incredible elders. One is Bruce Ellingson. Bruce has lived on this island for most of his life, grew up in Philip's arm. Um, he has a wealth of knowledge, but more than that, he, he has an outlook, a viewpoint that is so uh, inspiring, holistic, regenerative, um, it's brilliant. Um, he understands how networks, social networks in forests and in human communities work. He knows how to immobilize and inspire people. Um, you talk to him and you just want to be part of him, right, and learn from him. Um, we were just talking this morning in our circle with our students, the Mother Tree crew and Bruce and, and the, the Mother Tree network, and Bruce was speaking, and the students are just like, oh my God, can I, can I live in your back pocket and listen to you? Because he is just pouring out with, with his wisdom. He's passing it on to them. He wants them to have it. Um, he told the story of the beehive where the queen bee, um, you know, is has got her worker bees all around her in the hive and um, and um, sort of like the explorer goes out and finds you know a honey pot and comes back and teaches the worker bees this is where we're going to go to get that honey pot and 90% of them go out and they find that honey pot but 10% 
or the other explorers and they kind of wander off and you know maybe they're a bit confused but they bump into other honeypots and they're the real wealth gather they're the wealth of information gatherers they're they're the the new bruce ellingsons and i i could see the students all going i'm going to be that wanderer i'm going to be the one that's going to go find the new honeypot and then that expands the whole capacity of of that bee colony to find new sources of food and, and so he provided that example, and I could just see the students going, yeah, we're, we're a hive. We work together like that, and we're going to go and explore and teach and carry that torch forward. So thank you, Bruce Ellingson, because you are a leader in this community. You're a thought leader for, you know, not just this community, but really, you're a global thought leader. And we gravitate to you because you, we know you are that. Happy I, birthday to you. To you. I know. <laughs> Like so many others, Dr. Samard left Cortez refreshed and inspired by the mycelial intelligence of its forests and its people. We hope to see her again soon. Think. That's it for another edition of Folk You Radio. If you'd like to learn more about Folk U or subscribe to our podcast series, visit us at folku.ca. That's F-O-L-K-U dot C-A. Folk U is produced at CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Radio dot C-A. My little brain's almost always got something lame it's got to say. Hello, Cortez. This is your host of Folk U Radio here on CKTZ 89.5 FM, Manda O'Fox Gillespie. I thought we could read a few of the upcoming events. Today is Friday and July 14th, and there is a lot going on here on Cortez Island. So, of course, you can always go and find out more about what is happening on Cortez when you are here and ready to get out and do things by going to CortezIsland.com, what we call the Tideline. So, just today, even, right now, we are here. The Friday market is happening You can see local artisans and delicious food and crafts all here. Also today, the Women's Center is open, as is the Wild Cortez uh, and Museum. Both of the, uh, the museum is open, the Museum and Archives, as well as the Wild Cortez exhibit, which is at Linnea. There is also 
a community musical play happening at four o'clock, Musica do Circulo. 4 p.m. at the Cita Tent next to Manson's Hall. It's about 90 minutes. There is the art show that is happening at the art gallery, Sacred Dreamscapes, which has um, uh, features a number of local artists, Mindsha and Kira. You can check out their art at the uh, opening reception, which is tonight wait um from 6 to 9 p.m friday evening from 6 to 9 p.m and then the art house is available the gallery is open and available for you to view the exhibit uh every friday i believe um there's a friday there's a presentation with the artists on friday july 22nd 7 to 9 p.m and i believe they're open on saturdays and sundays as well Actually, I'm not completely sure of their hours, but um, we know it's open tonight and we know it's open next Friday as well. Um, there are lots of exercise classes, um, Pilates, yoga, energetic awareness and meditation, these kinds of things happening this evening and Five Rhythms uh, Movement Workshop happening uh, tomorrow. The um, art show, again, is open. It's also open tomorrow. There is Ultimate Frisbee on Sunday. There is the George Cirque Film Festival. Uh, George Cirque is an amazing uh, local naturalist. You can check out that uh, Sunday, July 17th from 7 to 10 p.m. At Manson's Hall. And we also have um, regularly on Wednesdays, please don't uh, miss free tech support happening here at the radio station, which is in Manson's parking lot every Wednesday, 2.30 to 4.30, drop in. Uh, as available, so kind of first come, first serve with our lovely Cleo Techspert. Those are just a few of the things coming up. Uh, there's also a training happening by FOCI, Friends of Cortez Island, on how to become an iNaturalist and use the amazing iNaturalist program. Uh, don't miss that. It's a a wonderful way to use citizen science to collect information um, that then other scientists can use to monitor the impacts uh, uh, that are happening in this area. There is uh, a music show, Beach Crashers Little Farmer, which is August 13th uh, at the Gorge Hall in Whaletown, so that's still a couple weeks away, but start thinking about that. It's always fun to have something to look forward to. There is the SCCA is having their annual general meeting July 26 at 7 p.m. If you want to be more involved with Manson's Hall and the amazing work that they are doing here. And 
I hope that everyone is starting to think and get prepared for Cortez Day. Cortez Day is July 23rd. This is a big community event. Uh, my kids say it is their most favorite community event. I would say it's my favorite community event other than the lip syncs, which do not miss the lip syncs when they come back. So um, Cortez Day, July 23rd, we need you. We need some volunteers to help make things happen. Uh, you can help run the barbecue grill. Uh, you can say you don't want to volunteer. Say you feel a little bit uh, competitive and you want to do something like build a boat. We're looking for teams for this year's Nail Sale and Bail as well. I am going to be helping to be the voice of the Nail Sale and Bail this year. It's my first time. So maybe you would like to have it be your first time or your repeat time to compete in the Nail Sale and Bail event. This is where you're giving limited tools and limited uh, construction material and limited time to build and then race your own boat. It is a lot of fun. There is a lot of betting done on who's going to win and what happens while it's being done. So don't miss that. A lot of fun. Uh, would you like to sign up to be a nail sale and bail a competition competitor this year? You can grab a couple of your friends and they can help you. So please do join us for that so you can help volunteer for Cortez Day or you can come and you can be one of the people helping to make it so fun and special. So if you are interested in signing up to be a participant in Nail Sale and Bail, you can reach out to me, Manda, at the at you at folku.ca, letter U at folku, F-O-L-K-U dot C-A. Uh, and I hope we will, I'm sure we will be seeing everybody who is around on that day. And if you are interested in knowing how you can kind of get involved in other ways to help support this event, it doesn't take a lot to make it a real fun, to make you feel like you are part of this thing that's being put on. It's just a, such a fun way to experience it. If you would like to learn about how you can be involved and help a little bit more, you can call 935-0015 or email mansonshall at gmail.com and say, hey, I, I'd like to be part of it. Um, Mark will get you set up or someone else. So mansonshall at gmail.com or 0015. Come and be part of that really special day. Well, there are so many more things happening. I hope that you will check some of them out by going to CortezIsland.com and figuring out how you would like to be involved. Thank you for being part of our community. We appreciate you. As always, I'd love to hear your ideas, suggestions, and thoughts on Folk U Radio. You can reach out to me by emailing the letter U at folku.ca.